Very good. All right. Thank you for the uh, polite smattering of applause. I appreciate that. It's uh, almost as much as when I used to play bass with Israel. Anyway, that's an old joke. Uh, some semi-true. Anyway, uh, happy to be here with you today. As Peter said, my name is Morgan Stevens, uh, and I'm, I'm here. Actually, we have a really important thing to share with you, bring to your attention as far as a local church. Uh, so if you're a guest here, bear with us. This is, of course, uh, in, impacting in your life as well. Uh, I'm here representing a number of relationships today. First of all, let's can we go to the center. I feel like I'm, we're like, we're talk, I'm talking to these people, and these people are, they're feeling, uh, they're, 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 that's right, not as uh, important as they should be. Uh, representing a number of relationships today. First of all, I, I come representing uh, a friendship that I've had with, with Peter and with this church and certainly with Elisa and many of you over, over many years. Uh, as Peter said, my background is in campus ministry. I sort of accidentally started the campus ministry here uh, back in 2003, 2004 that grew into a church under Peter's leadership and uh, many other people's leadership. Uh, so I come as a friend today, uh, loving who you are and who God's brought you to be. Second, I come uh, representing the, the outgoing now board of the Springs. And so as Peter mentioned, I've been a board member here for a number of years. I come representing every nation, along with Daniel Stevens. Some of you know that name. He's a, he pastors Mid-Cities Church in Midland, Texas. Uh, we serve the family of churches in the Southwest region that are part of every nation. Uh, so I come representing that. But also, probably most significantly, I come representing a relationship between Mosaic Church and the Springs. Uh, I'm, in, I'm the lead pastor there in Austin at our church. I come representing our elder team there. And so over the last, uh, especially a uh, couple of years, uh, the Springs board here has really been feeling that for this church to continue to move forward, to be all that God's called it to be, to grow in, in every way that it, that it can, uh, there needed to be some transition uh, of the, what's called the church government. Now, now, some of you are new, you're thinking, I mean, that's a boring word. It's actually a crucial word. And if you've been in churches before, you know how important those words are, church government. And so we've been feeling like there's been a change. I've been a part of that board. And so recently, and here's the big, the big picture news item, uh, the Springs board has voted to dissolve itself. That's actually a big deal. Boards usually don't do that. They usually try to, sorry, hang on to power sometimes. The board voted to dissolve itself uh, and to and request that Mosaic Church in Austin move into a formal and ongoing uh, oversight position of the Springs church. And so we accepted the invitation and the challenge. And so that's what I'm here to announce to you today that uh, uh, beginning as of really, I think of Thursday, uh, the 14th, but effective immediately really today, uh, Mosaic and the Springs are continuing to move together towards an ongoing uh, intertwined, enmeshed relationship. Uh, and so happy to, 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 to journey with you. Our churches have been sort of informally connected for many years. We Again, helped plan this congregation many years ago. Seems like through God's providence and timing, he's bringing us back together. Uh, what that can look like in the, in the near future, you can expect is um, uh, what we hope to, to do is to share a lot of our, our resources, our, our systems where we can help, our structure where we can help, um, uh, our, our financially, uh, you know, hardware, software, that kind of stuff. We also hope to provide encouragement. We're doing, obviously, a lot of these same series together, you may know, over the last few months, uh, video that kind of, again, website, maybe infrastructure, some financial help as well. Uh, but really, we hope to also 
focus in and develop this church's uh, leadership. Uh, there, man, there's, there's so many of you who are amazing people, and so we hope to, to continue to develop that along with Peter and the campus staff and some of the other staff that are here to really set in and see what God wants to do here. And so it's an exciting thing. The big highlight today is, man, we're coming together uh, as a couple of churches to partner together. We already partner together in every nation. Really, now we're, we're partnering uh, in more direct ways. So that's, uh, that's the big picture. Uh, if, you like to, if you have any questions about that, uh, I'm happy to talk about that. I'll be here after the service. I think it's an exciting thing. I think you should think it's an exciting thing. Uh, I've known Peter and Elisa for many years. They were crazy enough to ask me to be the officiant at their wedding. I've seen their family grow. I've known many of the campus staff here. So this feels like a real natural progression of what God's been doing over many years, and I'm happy here uh, to be here with you today and represent uh, the elder team of Mosaic, and I hope the heart of God for you. Does that make sense? Yeah. So very good. I want to thank Morgan and Mosaic Elders, too, because John and Galen, who you'll hear from in the coming months, uh, even though maybe you typically don't hear words like church governance every week, it is important. It's, it's not something to be taken too lightly. And honestly, the, the care and love that Morgan and John and Galen are showing us to, to help examine leaders and raise them up, I mean, they're t- putting a lot of the time that they don't have into taking it seriously. And we love that. We're very grateful. Mm. Very good. All right. Very good. Uh, Like I said, if you want to connect more after the service, that's why I'm here today, along with some time in God's Word. And so uh, we're going to get into our time in God's Word. As you can see, we are in the middle of a series looking at the love of God and the gospel of John. And I believe it's the, the habit of this house to stand during God's word, right? So would you guys mind doing that? Would you stand? Alberto, would you hand me that white iPad right there? And I'll do my best to read this. So um, here we go. You can follow along on the screen. I'm reading this, correct? All right. Here we go. All right. Here we go. All right. Just checking. I, back where I come, we have a scripture reader. Some places they read it all together. But hey, uh, you can follow along on the screen as I read this. This is from John chapter 5. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool, after each such disturbance, would be cured of whatever disease they had. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked, and the day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. 
For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And that's God's word for you today. Yeah, you may, you may be seated. Uh, there's this really, really smart guy you may have heard of, even smarter than Pastor Peter, uh, actually, or even smarter than Alberto. It's crazy, I know. Uh, but this really, really smart guy named Thomas Kuhn, uh, he wrote a book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And maybe you've heard of it, maybe not. But uh, Thomas Kuhn said that when any person, when you, come to new information, when you come to new data, you always process it through a personal, what he called, paradigm or a personal grid in order to interpret the data. In other words, here's his main two points. Number one, no one, you don't, come unbiased to new information. You don't come unbiased to what I'm saying today. And secondly, when you look at new information, a human being's consistent approach is to either look at the information to support what you already believe, or you throw it away. And the classic example of this is how the scientific community for years approached the solar system, right? You may know this. It was thought for centuries that the earth was the center of the solar system and that everything revolved around us and the earth. But as new information came in, scientists were forced to recognize that maybe what they believed wasn't entirely true. They were interpreting it incorrectly. And so Kuhn says, this is the way that understanding progresses. We interpret through old paradigms through old grids, until something new comes along that's too big to ignore, it shatters whatever we believed previously, and then we get a new and better way, hear this, of seeing what was true all along, what was all really true all along. And here in the Gospel of John, the writer John is saying essentially the same thing. He's saying there's a whole new way of seeing the world that's come. Sorry if I'm fiddling with this. Uh, seeing A whole new way of seeing the world that's come. He's saying there's a whole new grid. There's a whole new way of interpreting data. There's a whole new way to consider everything. Life, faith, religion, the supernatural, everything. And he puts it like this in the final words of the book. Flash forward to chapter 20. John says this. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe, because some of you won't, that Jesus is the Messiah, because some of you don't, the Son of God, some of you may struggle with that, but that by believing you may have, here's the key phrase, life in his name. There's a paradigm shift, John's saying, that you got to make. He's saying Jesus is the Son of God, and wherever you are, wherever you're coming from today, you need to make the shift, not just to believing it, he's saying, not even just to living it, but to experiencing it, to have life that's in his name. And so today in this message, I want to take a look at this chapter, chapter 5, and look at this sign, this miracle, and see how this sign challenges three groups of people to make three specific shifts in order to experience what John calls life in Jesus' name. He said, I want you to have life in this name. You're going to have to shift in a way in order to get it. So let's ask, what are these three moves to make these three shifts? First, there's a shift today for the skeptic. Maybe this is you. Second, there's a shift for the Christian, likely many of you. And three, there's a shift For every human heart. I want to take a look at these in turn and see what they mean. Here we go. You guys ready? 
Yeah. All right, here we go. Number one, there's a shift for the skeptic. And if this is you, I promise you I'm going to be nice uh, to you today. So what's this? Uh, uh, well, I'll begin this way. <clears throat> Over the last few centuries, you may know if you're a bible person at all, that it's been uh, popular to, to, for, for things like what are called form criticism or higher criticism, these forms of criticism, to come in and sort of deconstruct the Bible uh, and to hold up the Bible at various points and to, to point out, in theory, how those points either scientifically or archaeologically are inaccurate and then use those points to discredit, in particular, the New Testament and the person of Jesus. And you should know that this passage, what you just heard read, was used like that. That's one of those passages that was used in that way for many, many years. Let's take a look at it. John describes a very specific pool in Jerusalem. He says, now there is. In Jerusalem, look at all the details. Near the Sheep Gate, a pool. He gives you a nickname, Bethesda in Aramaic, surrounded by five covered colonnades. So he gives you location, he gives you details, and then he gives you a legend about it as well. This is in parentheses because in some of your translations, this verse exists. Sometimes it doesn't. I'll tell you why. It says, from time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after the disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. Now, the reason it's in parentheses is because most commentators don't believe that John or the Bible is teaching that this was a fact, only noting that a legend it sort of sprung up around the pool, maybe based on, yeah, a once upon a time, real healing that happened. But regardless, the big idea is that John says there's a pool with five what he calls colonnades, or the word in the Greek is porches, five porches. Now, in the late 18th, 19th centuries, when these criticisms were being leveled at the Bible, the critics looked at this and said, aha, this must be made up. There's no evidence that this pool ever existed. No record of it from antiquity. And not only is there no record of it, but who builds a five-sided pool? Porches in that day, they know, were only built on one side of the pool. So five porches means five sides. No one in that day ever built pentagonal pools. And so this chapter became, therefore, one more piece of evidence in the academic case against the Christian faith. Reliability of the Bible. They said John couldn't have written it. No other eyewitness couldn't have written it. And so someone wrote it years later and just made it up. And then two things happened which changed everything. Number one, in the late 19th century, guess what? The pool was found. That's going to change it. There was a German archaeologist named Conrad Schick. Now, all right, just want to pause here. I've said Schick and Schiff multiple times. I just want to pray for a brother. He doesn't sort of land in a landmine here and step in something. Uh, and so, you know, I've made it through this uh, so far. If something happens, we'll just, you know, edit the podcast. But anyway, so Conrad Schick discovered the pool. Turns out, yeah, the pool had been in Jerusalem all along. It had become hidden because a Christian church had been built on top of the pool to mark the miracle become lost from view and then from history. And second, after our brother Conrad discovered the pool, he excavated it. That's probably safer, right? First name. And he discovered that it was actually one pool with two halves to the pool, split by a ridge of rock in the middle. And in the middle was, guess what? A fifth porch. There was a fifth porch that had been built in addition to the four around each side. And now you know why. John takes great pains 
to point out specifically there are five porches because he's thinking like, what you're thinking? What kind of a pool has five porches? Oh yeah, only this one. And it took an eyewitness to actually know this because the pool was likely destroyed after 70 AD when the Romans conquered, destroyed Jerusalem. Now, can you see the irony here? That the very passage that for years was held up and pointed to as a piece of evidence against the reliability of the New Testament is now something that exists primarily to defend and undergird the reliability of the New Testament and the person of Jesus. And I want you to know something. There are actually many, many, many places like that in the New Testament where there's like a coin given or a title given or some inscription referred to, and people for years have said, ah, it doesn't exist, it's made up, it's only a legend. And then guess what? Some archaeologist discovers it somewhere, all the more proving the reliability of the Bible. You say, okay, fine. Why does all this matter? Here's why it matters, and here's what the shift is. Many people, especially skeptics, and this, if this is you, I think this is where you're coming from. I think most skeptics think of Christianity, certainly on a college campus, as just like a religion, right? Uh, and Jesus is just like a nice teacher. He's like the guru, of the Christian faith, right? Every, every faith system's got a guru. Jesus is the faith guru of Christianity. And the point of the Christian religion is like every other religion, which is just to provide certainty in the face of uncertainty. Birth, uh, childbearing, death, and a way to sort of make it through and cope with the uncertainty of life. And also, therefore, because Jesus is just a good teacher whose inspiration and example is supposed to help you through life, then it really doesn't matter whether he lived or not like it really doesn't matter whether socrates lived or not right he's just about his teaching whether confucius lived or not because the important point is just to follow their example and live a good life which means this here's the point god if he exists he only that god only loves catch this the good and the worthy right you catch that he only loves the ones who Make the pilgrimage, right? The ones who uh, do the sacrifices, the ones who keep the commandments. And if you do those things, if that's you, you're the winner in the religious system. And every system's like that. You're good. You're the winner. You're getting ahead when you do your part to make you awesome. Except, except, there's only one massive problem if you think that's what Christianity is or what the Bible is saying. Because Jesus said this over and over and over. Let me give you one example, Luke 5, 32. He said this, I have not come to call the worthy, the good, the one who makes the pilgrimage. I have not come to call the one who keeps the commandments, the one who does the sacrifices. He said, I'm not here for the righteous. I have come to call who? The bad people, the unworthy sinners to repentance. He says over and over, I'm not here for the worthy. I'm here for the unworthy. And those who know they're not worthy. And Paul the Apostle, he picks this up over in Romans and he says, Oh, we've got a God who he says saves, who justifies. He says, The ungodly, even while they don't work. About that. And how does God do that? He is where this all comes together. It's through the true life, the real death, the literal resurrection of the factual person of Jesus Christ. And therefore, if the New Testament is not true, and Jesus either 
never lived, as some secular skeptics say, if he never died on a Roman cross, as Muslim skeptics say, or if he was never bodily actually resurrected, as some Jewish skeptics say, that means you cannot be saved by him because it never actually happened. And therefore, you can only now try to save yourself through an ever-increasing and crushing burden of self-oriented performance. That means you always got to be awesome, right? You've always got to be beautiful. You've always got to be young. And most importantly, in our culture, really, really thin, right? smart, self-actualized. And if you're not, you got to work harder to get there, either at the cost of your own soul or someone else's. Either picking yourself up, or how many of you see this in our culture, putting others down, right? But if the Bible is true, and this really happened, which it did, then here's the shift. The Bible is not about you, right? And what you must do, it's about him, And what he has done, what Jesus Christ has done for you and as you in your place. If you make the shift from making the Bible just about you and understand it's about Jesus, guess what? That'll bring freedom and hope and joy, and to use John's phrase, life in his name. Life in his name. That's number one. That's the first shift. Maybe it's for you today. Second, there's a shift also for the Christian, shift for the Christian people. There you go, I danced in the minefield right there. All right, this is directly related to the first one. And here's my question. If that first shift is a radical reorientation to the gospel of Jesus, then let's ask, well, what should Christian life look like? What should Christian ministry look like? What should maybe even the church, you all, us today, look like? And here's why this is so important, because there are many, many churches, and before I get into this, let me just qualify by saying, I am thankful, Pastor Peter, we are thankful for the body of Christ. Thankful for the body of Christ. In Austin, man, I work with so many churches, labor with pastors to make the city great for God, and Mosaic Springs are just one part of what God's doing. I'm so glad we are not alone. You ought to be glad you're not alone. But it's so easy for churches to fall into a ditch over time, and here's what I mean. It's easy. It would be easy for a church, this church, to just orient itself around itself and its own culture. And therefore, over time, for many reasons, it can become imbalanced in how it functions and how it feels to the city. And you can see uh, right here in this chapter, I think what Jesus calls us to is this remarkable balanced, uh, gospel-centered, Christ-centered, holistic approach away from some extreme and right into the heart of God. And let me give you two ways I think that can look like for this church, what we certainly try to do at Mosaic Church. Two ways. I could give you like 10 here, but I just got time for two. First, I think, to answer the question, Christian life and ministry should look like having a balance of word and deed. Word and deed. Let's ask. What does Jesus care, here's my question, what does he care about most with this man? Think about the story. What does he care about most? Does he care most about helping the man in his body and his physical needs? Or does he care most about this man and meeting his spiritual needs? Come on, which one does he care about most? Oh, 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 we're getting all kind of answers. Oh, man, some of you are wrong, some of you are right. Here's the answer. It's both. 
It's both. Traditional liberal churches will say what God really cares about is meeting his physical needs, like loving our neighbor, standing in solidarity with the poor, never speaking about moral truth absolutes, because that's just judgy, right? But look at what Jesus says to the man right after he heals him. He says, hey, 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 you, you're well again? Feels good to walk, huh? Yeah, pal, I know that. All right, you're well again. Stop sitting or something worse may happen to you. You talk, man, this isn't like the hipster Jesus, right? Who's just legs fitting like a 10-year-old skinny jeans. Man, this is not that guy, right? No, he's all up in this guy's face, not about his poor choices or his mistakes, about his sin, Jesus called it. And it comes like with this like veiled threat. In a traditional liberal church, that's not what ministry looks like. And yet at the same time, Jesus doesn't just minister the word to him or truth. What does he do? He heals him. And in particular, he heals like mm, a person who doesn't really appear to deserve it. Not only is this guy habitually sinning here, he's not keeping the law of God. He's not a good person. He doesn't even have any kind of faith. He's got some like low level superstitious faith in like a magic unicorn fairy pool. Right. That's what he's believing in. And when Jesus does heal him, the guy rats him out and turns him over to the authorities. Uh, flash forward, chapter 9. Jesus heals a man born blind. That guy stands up for Jesus, debates the Pharisees. Here the Pharisees ask him, you know, who told you you could walk with your mat on the Sabbath? Like, who told you you could break our law? And the guy goes, that guy. Don't look at me, right? He told me to do that. Now, in traditional conservative churches, maybe this is where you came from, help is given to those who deserve it who are like a part of our deal, right? Believe our way, who have earned it, who are nice and clean. And if we're here, we're supposed to give help to people in trouble. It's probably because they're in trouble because they deserved it. And they ought to like, you know, take two commandments and call us in the morning. (laughs) We just deal out truth. But how does Jesus minister here? Come on, word and deed. Compassion and blunt truth at the same time time, only ministering to one or the other. That'll never change people, change a city. Like how Jesus changes this man, which is why I think if you stick around here, you're going to hear about your need to be personally converted to faith in Jesus. That's strong language. He says himself, unless a person's born again, he can't enter my kingdom. And yet you're going to hear about your commission, commission to identify with and serve those on the bottom, not just at the top. Ministry should look like word and deed. You tracking with me so far? Word and deed. All right. Second, look at this second one here. Uh, Ministry should look like both challenging culture and affirming culture. And here's uh, what I mean. When you listen to certain voices, certain critics, this is sort of for, you know, churchy people, you'll hear something like this. You'll hear on one hand, either America is doomed and under God's judgment. We have crossed a moral line and cannot come back. Or you'll hear this the opposite. God knows we all struggle. We're all made like flesh, right? And he loves us for how we are. God bless America. (laughs) So which one is it? Does God want to affirm and love our culture? Or does he want to judge our culture? The answer is yes. That's the answer is yes. And here's why. If the gospel is true, which it is, 
And it's not the product of any one culture, which it's not. That means when it comes into a culture, when it comes into San Marcos, and it's preached rightly, lived rightly, it's going to fit with the parts of the gospel uh, that people are, are living out, uh, the parts of the gospel that, 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 that connect with the, the imago Dei, the residual goodness, the common grace that people have in their lives, the good parts of every culture. And yet it's always going to be resisted by the parts of humanity that, that conspire together to resist a perfectly holy and morally flawless God. In other words, we'll put it like this. The gospel is always graciously subversive. Graciously subversive. Look at two ways Jesus is graciously subversive here. First with this man, he's at the pool, right? He asks him, uh, you know, what do you want? Like he doesn't know, but whatever. He wants to see what the guy says. The man says, I want to get healed, but I don't have anybody to put me in a magic pool. Well, what does Jesus do here? Oh, he affirms that part of the man that wants to be healed. In that day, a crippled man, you should know this, was not allowed into the temple of God. See, to be healed was to be brought back into community, right? He couldn't experience that, to feel normal. Whatever his culture told him was normal. That's what he wanted. Jesus affirms that, but he never affirms superstitious faith in a magic pool is the way to go. In other words, he tells the guy, right desire Wrong way to go about it. Right desire, wrong way to go about it. And he does the same thing earlier, chapter 4, with a Samaritan woman at the well. He says, hey, lady, you know like all, those, all the men you've been with? Oh, it's like five, six, counting, kind of going up here, right? He's saying, I'm the ultimate man you need to get with. Except in a way you've never possibly have imagined. See, he affirms her desire for love, for romance, but then he insists that he is how. She can have what her heart really longs for. Right desire. Wrong way to go about it. See, every culture has some desire. It sets up, exalts as supreme, or this is how you get meaning. And for the most part, the gospel says all those desires are legitimate. Your desire here today for love, legit. Romance, legit. Family, legit. Significance, legit. Influence, legit. And yet, those things all get critiqued. By the gospel. And so to the question, does God love our nation? Yes, for God so loved the world. He sent his only son. I'm pretty sure the United States is part of that. Not to condemn America, but to save it. And yet are there things in our culture that are awful? Yes, and we must believe for them to change, courageously work uh, for those things, speak to those things, for them to change by the power of God, just like Christians in every century have done, because those things break God's heart and they break God's people. Affirm the good, critique the bad, minister right into the heart of all of that. So what if, what if as a church, what if we could bring those things together? What if we could live out word, deed, critique, affirm? What would that look like? Let me tell you a story. There's a man by the name of Langdon Gilkey. Yeah, Langdon Gilkey. No one here naming their kid Langdon anymore. All right. If you did, praise the Lord. All right. I should probably not say that. All right. Langdon. Love the name. Right. My, all my kids are named Langdon. Anyway. All right. <laughs> Langdon wrote this fascinating book called... Shantung Compound, the story of men and women under pressure. Hang on with the quote. Let me pull that off for a second. Let me set it up. Uh, Gilkey was a professor uh, who went to China to teach uh, around the beginning of World War II. And when his village in China was overrun by the Japanese, he was put into a POW camp. And he, he writes that all the people had once they were put in prison in this camp, all they had was like three feet of space. 
at the bottom of their bed for all their possessions. There were 2,000 people crammed into one story living uh, in one city block. He said it was difficult just to survive. And he says that when he got there, he had had already like a, <clears throat> like a level of church upbringing. But he said for all practical purposes, he was really a secular, skeptical person. He thought faith is nice for people who like really need it. But our culture doesn't really need it, you know, because all people are basically good and fair and organized and rational. And his book is about his journey out of that mentality. And he says when he got there during those three years there, he became utterly disillusioned with all of humanity. He saw that people there were wretched, they were cruel, they were selfish, they stole, they betrayed one another. And he said it wasn't just the secular skeptical people. He said it was the religious people who did it as well. And he said actually the religious people, including missionaries there, were actually almost worse because they came up with airtight excuses and reasons why they could look down and treat people in a way that they thought was beneath them. And he began to realize, he said that people were not inherently good. At their core, he realized people are not inherently good, fair, rational, organized, but his word, sinful. But right in the middle of his disillusionment, both with secularism, skeptical living, and religious, churchy faith, he said something stood out to him that changed everything. He said there was one ray of light that darkened his dark heart in that dark camp, and right in the middle of that POW camp, the ray of light, was one man named Eric Little. Some of you may have heard the name before. Little was famous for winning the 400-meter race at the 1924 Olympics. It wasn't his main race. His main race was the 100, but he ran a harder race, the 400, because he refused to run on the Sabbath, but he ran in one, and that was his story in the movie Chariots of Fire, you may have seen. And Gilkey wrote that it would, be, it would be hard to underestimate the impact that Eric Little had on the camp and the prisoners, and this is what he wrote, quote, he said, it's rare indeed when a person has the good fortune to meet a saint, but Eric came as close as anyone I've ever known to actually being one. Everybody struggled with anger, despair, selfish behavior, and actually the missionaries were almost worse than the rest. But Eric was always overflowing with good humor and joy and had a love of life. He was constantly pouring himself out for the pinned-up teenagers in the camp. He ran chess tournaments. He built model boats. He led square dancing. And he cooked him. It's an outreach this coming Friday, right? I think Peter right on the campus square dancing. Yes, all right. And he cooked him modest meals when he could. We scarcely could have survived without him. And Eric Little died of a brain tumor just before the camp was liberated. And Langdon Gilkey, he tried to figure out what made Eric Little different, and finally he understood, and he understood one thing that pushed him away from being a secular, skeptical person and kept him from being a religious, prideful person. Gilkey said, I came to understand that Eric Little had had an encounter with the grace of God with the grace of God, because he heard from Eric Little's mouth word ministry, and he saw in Eric's life deed ministry. He saw Eric affirm the good parts of one of the worst moments in time in history, and he saw him resist the oppression of the camp as well. And I want to propose to you today, church, that if we can do that, if we can live out word and deed, if we can affirm and critique when and where it's right, we can show people, here's the point, that we can have life in Jesus name and they can have it too and if we will refuse the imbalance of only word or only uh, deed or only critique or only affirm we won't end up just affirming and blending in right 
Nor will we be despairing because all we are is negative and critiquey all the time. If we'll have the person of Jesus at the center and make that shift, we can do for our culture what Eric Little did for Langdon Gilkey. What happened to Gilkey? Well, he survived the camp, came to faith in Jesus, became a prolific writer and Christian educator, all because he saw life, the life of Jesus, in one person, Eric Little. How can we get that then? How can we get an encounter, that kind of encounter, with the grace of God? Finally, one more shift to make. It's by making this one, the shift for every human heart. How does this shift from self to Jesus happen? I think as you'll see in three stages in the life of the man at the pool. Stage one, you got to see today that we, excuse me, that Jesus comes to us first. We don't come to Jesus first. I'll say it again. We want to see Jesus comes to us first. We don't come to Jesus first. Now, if you're a theology background, you know, man, Christians have had like this intramural debate about this, how, you know, how, how much of a person's will is involved with coming to faith. But regardless, what all Christians have always said is that God at least does something first. He does something first. All right, and you can see this. The writer John, he shows you this. It's like a joke over, like comical, over and over and over in the gospel. Look at this man. He doesn't come to Jesus first, No. Jesus comes to him first, the man born blind, right? He doesn't come to Jesus first. Jesus comes to him. And then Lazarus, who is dead, doesn't come to Jesus first because he's dead. Jesus comes to him. Even at the end of the book, Mary, uh, she sees Jesus resurrected in the garden. She can't even recognize a brother, right, until Jesus opens her eyes. Why? Because John's showing you a picture of the human soul. Because when the Bible writes that no one seeks God, we don't like that, right? We say, look at me. I'm in church, right? Like the quote, what about Bob? You know, I'm baby stepping, right? I'm doing the steps, right? And you may say, well, what about about all the people who, who, who came up to Jesus? Well, think about it. They could only find him first because he came to planet earth first, right? If we, but here's the point, if we were smart enough or good enough to find him first, that wouldn't be grace. We would have a reason to boast. But Paul writes, we don't. Stage two, to encounter the grace of God. We must believe we need God's salvation, not just his help. God's salvation, not just his help. I love this. When Jesus asked the man, do you want to get well? It's crazy. The man doesn't answer like you think, well, yeah, or duh, or look at me. No. He says, he doesn't even say no. He says, sir, he's got an excuse. I have no one to help me into the pool while I'm trying to get in. Someone goes down ahead of me. Can you see what this man's doing? He's thinking, my salvation is the pool, right? My salvation's in the pool. If I can just get in the pool there, I'll be fine. If I can get into the water there, I'll be fine. Everything else is secondary. And so look what he does to Jesus. He turns Jesus. And it's just an object. Jesus is only someone to help him get what he'd wanted to get all along. That man wanted a new body, yeah. But Jesus came to offer him a whole new life. But this is what this man does here. Is what the human heart does. Oh, well, it's got something that thinks it's going to save it. And it's happy to pray a prayer like we pray a prayer. We want to bring Jesus into perfect like geosynchronous orbit around our life and say, you stay out there and help me get what I want right here, right? Jesus, help me be the next famous person, pastor. Yeah, we do that. Next famous singer, help me get that promotion, right? I need you, Jesus, to help me get into that pool. We do this. 
I need you to help me get that water. Oh, but here's the irony. This man was looking for water, but the irony is water came looking for him. Water came looking for him. Jesus himself said, I am living water. I am living water. I've come to give you what you can never get on your own. And Jesus heals the man without even touching the water. Oh, why? Because he made the water. He made water. He himself is living water. And what that man had only heard about, you got to see this, what he had longed for, whatever rumor he had heard about in that pool was now standing in front of him. The rumor had come to life. The rumor had come true. The salvation he had wanted was standing in front of him. Every hope he'd ever had was right there, right there. He needed God's salvation, not just his help. And third, final stage, to encounter the grace of God, we must now respond and go. See, we encounter the grace of God, this life-changing event. We become a Christian when we simply say, God, I'm like that crippled guy right there. I can't do anything to save me, make me different. I'm looking for something else to save me, but only you can. Only you have the salvation my heart really needs. And then he respond like that man did in the moment. He picked up his mat and he went. He didn't just look at Jesus and say, oh, that's a nice teaching. Hey, you're really talking good about my mat. I like that. I'll think about it. No. He picked up his mat and he went. And second, for the Christian person, this is how you encounter the grace of God over and over and stay Christ-centered. It's by looking to Jesus, responding to him as he commands and leads our heart, even the Christian person, my heart, always wants to go back to some stupid, shallow, stinking pool. I need the grace of God to help. We, begin, we can begin with the gospel, but we forget what's brought us where we are. And that's a trap. It's a trap for a church. But hear me, what's reformed me, reformed this church, is the gospel of Jesus following that living, walking water. That's what's gotten us here. That's what's going to get us there. And hear me, whatever pool you've been in, looking at whatever pool you've been looking at, maybe it's for 38 long years. You've even forgotten why you're there. Today, let me tell you, can be your day to go free. Today can be your day to go free. As the hymn says, he speaks and listening to his voice, new life the dead receive. The mournful, broken heart rejoices. The humble, poor believe. Hear him, ye deaf, his praise ye dumb. Your loosened tongues employ, ye blind. Behold, your Savior come and leap, ye lame, for joy. This can be yours today. In Jesus' name, in the gospel, and all God's people said, come on. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for you, church.